Broadcasting from the Blue Ridge Mountains of Roanoke, Virginia. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Jamie Lee Show. I have three stories for you today. A license to print money, draft riots rock New York City, and brothers killing brothers. Our story starts faced with shortages of metal for coins. The union decided that paper money was the way to keep the economy going. When the war began, the union economy was far more robust and resilient than that of the Confederates, but that wasn't saying much. The shock of secession had severely affected the North as well. American citizens were hoarding gold and silver coins, the dominant currency of the day. For its part, the government was faced with a ballooning payroll packed with soldiers and other war expenditures. Bold action had to be taken to prevent bankruptcy. The U.S. government decided that the way to alleviate this pressure would be to introduce paper currency which would allow it to have more control over the money supply. There hadn't been a paper currency in the United States since colonial times, when the weak and easily faked continentals were used to fund the revolution. Furthermore, paper money has to be carefully regulated, because if too much of it printed and put into use, it can cause inflation. If the inflation is bad enough, the paper money itself can become worthless. The Confederate economy fell into this trap, and the cost of goods skyrocketed. The Union was determined to avoid such a calamity, so the Treasury made a strong and ultimately successful effort to limit the amount of paper bills it would print. The first paper note to be issued for wide circulation in the North was the demand note. It was so named because it was redeemable for its worth in gold on demand. This note was only issued for one year before it was replaced by another, the legal tender note. The new notes were known as fiat money, which means that they weren't backed by anything other than the government's word. Normally, there were not nearly as popular as the demand notes had been. The design of these first paper notes were carefully considered to reduce the chance that they could easily be counterfeited. The familiar green color of American money was chosen for the first time during the Civil War. Photography was still in its early stages and could only create images in black, so the green color Ensure that some clever person with a primitive camera couldn't create a convincing copy. Although there was some green ink on the front of demand notes, the notes became known as greenbacks because the back was printed entirely in green. The patterns and designs on these notes were quite complicated. The greenback side displayed the value in large text on top of a field of smaller numbers. Alexander Hamilton was on the front of the $5 bill, and Abraham Lincoln was on the 10. The 20 featured a female representation of liberty. The skilled engravers of northern mints and print houses had created very fine and ordinantly constructed bills 
that would prove very difficult to replicate. When the legal tender notes were released the following year, they had similar but distinct designs. We are a band of brothers and native to the soil. Fighting for our liberty with treasure, blood, and toil. And when our acts were threatened, the cry rose near and far. Hurrah for the money we flag that bears a single star. Hurrah, hurrah, for southern rights, hurrah. Hurrah for the money we flag that bears a single star. Throughout its early history, the United States survived with volunteer militias and armies. There had never been a draft. By 1863, however, not enough men were joining the Union Army. President Lincoln signed a conscription bill into law. It assigned each congressional district a particular number of soldiers to recruit, and all men ages 20 to 45 were eligible, although various exemptions were available. Much of the nation witnessed opposition to the draft but New Yorkers seemed particularly resentful. The legislation had set the city's recruitment target at 26,000, and many felt this figure was too high. The Battle of Gettysburg had also just ended, and the gruesome descriptions of combat and long list of casualties that appeared in New York papers likely rattled many prospective draftees. In addition, there were many loopholes in the draft legislation, one of which allowed able-bodied men to buy their way out of the obligation by paying $300. This obviously meant that rich people didn't have to fight if they didn't want to. Further, because many poor whites in New York found themselves competing for jobs against blacks, they didn't want to fight a war that had the freedom of slaves at its root. Toss in the fact that Lincoln was strongly disliked by New York Democratic leaders, and the stage was set. On Sunday, July 12, 1863, New York newspapers printed the names of those who had been drafted the day before. The next morning, groups of people gathered to protest, peacefully at first. Soon, however, the crowd started attacking people or places that symbolized the draft, such as police and the office of the provost marshal, where the draftees' names had been drawn. The targets of the violence continued to expand and ultimately included anything at all related to the draft, the Republican Party, or wealth. Crowds attacked jewelry stores, homes of business leaders, and the offices of the New York Tribune, a Republican newspaper. The armory at 2nd Avenue and 21st Street was burned to the ground. Perhaps worst of all, the rioters began turning on black residents of the city. They looted the colored orphan asylum, destroyed the homes of blacks as well as those of whites who tried to protect them, and lynched several blacks. By the end of the first day, it was clear that the draft had ignited a race riot. As the second day of rioting began, city officials hotly debated how to quell the violence. 
One proposal was for the city to pay the federal government $2.5 million to cover the $300 fee to release each drafted New Yorker from his military obligation. But that didn't help. Even when the government announced that the draft would be delayed by a month, the rioters continued to wreck the city. Police proved ineffective in quashing the violence, as did troops from the National Guard. Not until soldiers fresh from the battlefields of Gettysburg marched into New York to keep the peace did the city begin to settle down. At the end of five days of rioting, more than 70 people had been killed, and property damage totaled $1.5 million. Yet, it still wasn't enough to stop the draft, which resumed in August with 10,000 federal troops stationed throughout the city. By then, However, New York Governor Horatio Seymour had convinced the federal government to reduce New York City's quotes to 12,000 men. This time, the Democratic city leaders oversaw the lottery, which eased the anxiety in the working class about the fairness of the draft. More than 623,000 Americans lost their lives in the Civil War. Yet, only a third of that number actually died in battle. The rest succumbed to poor and ineffective medical care and massive outbreaks of contagious diseases such as dysentery. Another 400,000 were wounded but survived. New and more efficient weapons increased the death toll. Muskets with grooved bores, using a technique called rifling to give the bullet more spin, were much more accurate than the previously smooth bored guns. Artillery shells delivered deadly payloads of 75 to 80 musket balls, and impact shells detonated with 10 pounds of black powder upon landing. Canister shells exploded like giant shotgun shells shooting 25 to 50 small iron balls in all directions. These munitions supported a revolutionary concept in war strategy. The main focus of weapons moved from destroying property to killing people. The number of soldiers, both Union and Confederates, killed in the Civil War is higher than those of the American Revolutionary War, World War I, World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War combined. The Battle of Antietam on September 17, 1862, was the single bloodiest day in American history. More than 23,000 soldiers were left dead or wounded in the aftermath. The ancient Greeks had two philosophies of war. A blood war was a nasty thing with no good reason at its source. A just war, however, was necessary and fair. The war between the states might be considered the ultimate just war, as it let the United States through its growing pains and into adulthood. The conflict 
which raged between 1861 and 1865, brought carnage and death to levels seldom seen in the annals of world history. This is Jamie. History teaches us about who we were and who we are now. Make no mistake, you can't take back bad things from the past, but you can learn from them. Thanks for listening.